All right, we're going to get started while the rest of the guys come in. First of all, happy Easter to everybody. I know you're all saying, wait a minute, that was last week. I said, no, it's not. For half the world, it's this week. Uh, the United States celebrates Roman Catholic Easter. The rest of the world, east of, when you go Greece and east, all celebrate Orthodox Easter. It's never the same day because nobody can agree on how to calculate it. It dates back from uh, somewhere around uh, 360 AD. The Eastern and the Western churches cannot agree on the calendar. And so they all agree that it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. Except the Eastern Orthodox churches all say, but it has because Jesus celebrated the Passover, it has to be the Sunday after Passover. The Jews don't agree with anyone on how you do a calendar. The Jewish calendars are 28 day months, they have 13 28 day months in a year. Uh, and so it doesn't, that doesn't pan out. So every 14th year, they add another month. That throws the calendar off. And so what the Eastern Orthodox do is say, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the equinox, but it has to be after Passover. So this year, Passover was, sorry, it has to be at the end of Passover. Passover is a seven-day celebration. So the Passover the Seder Supper that you think of Passover was before last week. It was Thursday the week before that. But it's a seven-day celebration. So Passover ended this Friday. And so therefore, for the Eastern Orthodox, today's Easter. So you guys all messed up. You don't have your Easter outfits on. You don't have your Easter baskets. You don't have the Easter egg hunt set up today. But... Jews don't celebrate Easter. That would be correct. The Messianic Jews do. They celebrate both Passover and Easter. But it is Orthodox Easter today. And Ruslan, who lives... Ruslan, for those of you who don't know, is our Otter Creek's missionary to uh, Russian Belarus. He lives with us when he's in country, and he's in country right now. And so he kept reminding me all week that real Easter is coming up this week. Because Russian Orthodox Church celebrates it this week. So if you have friends in Eastern Europe, they're all going to be talking about Easter this week. Well, you know, they, they uh, uh, messed up the words on the last song. The last song was, I believe in the resurrection. Yeah. They did not believe in the resurrection five times, so they really believe in the resurrection. That's right. <laughs> well, sometimes you just can't remember how to end the song. I know. You've know, got you, to hear you, exactly what they believe. That's right. <laughs> You keep going, and you're going like, I realize I, I forgot the last words. I forgot the last words. And so you just keep singing. And hopefully someone in the audience starts up. So, uh, so happy Easter to everybody. Uh, and because, as we've talked about, the interesting thing about Easter, since we're waiting for the rest of the people to show up, is that Passover is always a full moon. Because it's the Jewish Passover is on the 15th of Nisan. And Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. So 
Day one is new moon. Day 15 is uh, full moon. So Passover is always on a full moon. So think about that when you read the stories of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, etc. It's a full moon. And so there's a lot of light around. Uh, sometimes we kind of think of you know guys with torches and they're like, it's a full moon. They can see people. Uh, but it says they brought torches. They brought torches because it's still nighttime. You know, the battery is not invented yet, so there's no flashlights. So they had torches, but you also have the sun out, or the, the moon out, and it can be bright. But you need both. Uh, so, all right, let's talk about the next, the last four chapters in Second Samuel. I'm going to do two this week. Randall's going to do two next week. Uh, these, cha- these four chapters are not in chronological order. These are an addition to the story. But they're in a very particular structure. Uh, our educational system is Greek. I mean, uh, our, Sandy Collins is not here, although I should tell you, how do you, write a, how do you write a story? You have an introduction. You have your three points, no more than, no less than three, at least three points in your paragraph, and then your conclusion. So the most important part about your statement is your conclusion. That's Greek. That's how our education, that's how English runs. Hebrew is an Eastern language. They are, uh, the way they do it is called chiastic. That's pretty pretentious. Chi, chi is the Greek word for X. So I don't know why Hebrew is, uses the Greek word, but uh, what that means is, I tell people it's the Oreo sandwich. It's the Oreo cookie, right? The good part of the Oreo is where? In the middle. And so when Hebrews write, their writing's Oreo. You have, an in, you have the, uh, the cookie, the cookie, and the important part in the middle. So when you read things that are Hebrew, don't read them Greek. Don't look at them Latin, because these next four chapters, if you, we would read this as the most important story is the famine at the end caused by David and his census. That is not the most important story. These four chapters are structured in a way that's easy to remember, because remember, most of these people are memorizing this, and you're going to tell this story. So this, the next four chapters, which is really the story of David, as they tuck in a couple stories here, is you have a famine on both ends. You have stories of heroes, and in the middle, you have two psalms of David. You have a psalm written when he was very, as a very young king, and you have a psalm written that is written as the last psalm David wrote. And so this week we're going to talk about the first one, and Randall's going to do the, the last one. And so that's the important part when you look at this four-chapter story is the psalms are the most important part of this. They're tucked here in the middle. There are other stories, but it's all about the psalms. So let's talk a little about the story. All right. 
this is the, at the beginning of the reign of David, there was a famine for three consecutive years. If in, the, in this time, you pretty much lived uh, harvest to harvest. So if you have three straight years of famine, you're getting hungry. You're, you're eating all your food. You're eating all your seed that you were saving for next year because you're now hungry. So three years is a really big deal. And so the important thing, and David sought the face of the Lord. So David is now king. Uh, he's probably living in Hebron. This is very early on in his, in his reign. And he says, so he goes to choir of God. And God says, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. And the question should jump up immediately, who are the Gibeonites? Uh, and the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but they were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. Jump back to uh, Joshua. The people of Israel are entering the Holy Land, the Canaan. They are conquering stuff. Uh, Jericho is a major city. The Israelites destroy Jericho. Well, God destroys Jericho. The Israelites just happen to be there at the time. You know the story. They're just marching around it, right? All they have to do is march around it and the walls fall down. And so God destroys the city. And then uh, the next big city is Ai. God destroys that city. And so uh, the people of Canaan are now... Welcome to class. That's right. Uh, see, they're sitting in the A-plus seats. You have the A, B, C, you know, we're passing seats in the back. The A-plus seats are around the corner. All right, so the people are coming in, and so the Gibeonites, they hear what the God has done to this regional powerhouse, Jericho. And so they are not stupid. So they realize we're next because I, the city is not very far from Jericho. They realize they're coming for us next. And so what they did is they, they got a bunch of old donkeys, worn out sacks, old wineskins, filled them up, got moldy bread, stuck it in there, and then went and saw <coughs> Joshua. And they said, hey, we're from a long way away, but we have heard of what, you have, what your God did to the people of Jericho. We want to be a treaty to you. We don't want you to conquer us. And, uh, and the Israelites said, perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty? Because God told them, destroy everything. Because everyone here is rebelled against God. Destroy everything. And so, where are you, where are you from? We've come from a distant country. We heard what you did in Egypt. We heard what you did to the king of the Amorites. We heard what you did in Jericho. We heard what you did... So he's but they're buttering them up. You know, you're you guys are great. You're powerful. Uh, look how dry and moldy our bread is. Look at our wine skins. These were these were new when we packed them. 
We had just, this bread was warm out of the oven when we put it in our bags. And so the Israelites, they were wise. They sampled their provisions. So they tasted, go, yeah, this is moldy bread. This is old wine. But they did not inquire of God. And then Joshua made a treaty of peace to let them live. And then the leaders of the, the assembly ratified it. Joshua is speaking for God in this place. So he makes a treaty with them. And then uh, three days after they made the treaties, they found out their neighbors. They're like 10 miles away from where Joshua was standing. And so uh, because he had sworn an oath, they did not attack them. And then Joshua calls them and says, wait a minute, you lied to us. But I, Joshua was speaking for God, so my word is word. I'm going to keep my word. But this is what God says. You're now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and carriers for the house of my God. They become servants, and they are supposed to bring the wood for the daily sacrifice of the temple, or at this point, the tabernacle. And uh, so he saved them, and so they live in Gideon. So that's who these people are. This is 400 years before Saul. And so what Saul does is he is attacking them and killing them in spite of the fact that Israel has a treaty with them. So Saul is violating the word of God. Why would Saul kill him? It's all about real estate. Like everything else, Saul thinks he's smarter than God. This is Gideon, right here. Where's Saul from? Benjamin. Uh, and so, from Saul's standpoint, if we can, he is scared that these guys are going to ally with the Philistines. Ignoring 400 years of history, they've not done anything for 400 years. They've worked for the Israelites. This, so, in Benjamin, most of the writers I read said Saul thinks he's going to clear out Gibeon because he is scared they're going to ally with the Philistines. And then he feels threatened. Ignoring the fact that Joshua, and which who was speaking for God, made a treaty with them. And Gilgal is where Saul is, most of don't lie. Right here, yeah. And, and these are, you're talking, I mean, this maybe 10 miles, maybe, maybe less. So this is very close. And so, so, and so, uh, David had inquired of God, and he says, because Saul broke, he broke the word that I gave through Joshua to these people. 400 years before, but still my word. And so the Gibeonites come back and answer, well, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family. Very important, Saul or his family. He's not asking from David, it's for Saul and his family. Saul's dead at this point. Uh, nor do we have the right to put anyone to death in Israel, in Israel to death because they're servants. Uh, 
Well, what do you want me to do, David asked. This is a very difficult passage, depending on how you interpret David's actions. As for the man who destroyed and plotted against us, so we have been decimated, and we have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah and Saul, the Lord's chosen one. And so the king said, I will give them to you. That's a really difficult. You'll, you'll bring this up. Did God really tell David to put seven people to death who had nothing to do with this decision? Or is this David kind of like Joshua? He's a, he's a godly man, but he may be going out on his own on this. Uh, you'll read people that say both things. Most people lean towards David's kind of going out on his own. Uh, we're talking a little bit about culture versus uh, law. Deuteronomy 26, 24, 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor are their children put to death for their parents. Each will die for his own sin. Uh, culture for that day had inherited guilt. If your father did something, you inherited his guilt. And so what you see the Gibeonites doing is cultural. Uh, we have actual writings of this Hittite king. This Hittite king is just north of Israel. And he basically does the same thing. There's a famine, and he said, who sinned? Uh, and they found some people they thought had sinned, and so that person wasn't alive anymore, so he took their descendants and killed them. A, this is a very cultural thing in this period. Uh, we do kind of the same thing, right? How many do, how many do, we don't kill people, but we blame kids for their parents' actions. Family, you know, bad, he's from a bad family. So, I mean, you know, so we have to be very careful that we're not, well, we don't do that. Well, we might. You know, he's... Is this sort of an extension then? Jesus in John 9, they ask, who sinned this man or his parents? Yes. Yes. This Similar. is the same theology, which is that you can sin and it runs down. That sin causes your child to have essentially sin. And... The law of Moses eliminates that. It says, no, you're responsible for you. So if your dad did something that's worth being put to, worth to, de being worth put to death, then we don't put you to death for it because he's not around. But that's exactly what David does. He acts culturally, not scripturally. And so... So he takes the seven surviving male relatives of Saul, except for uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You say that five times really fast. Uh, we're calling Meth from now on. And I'm sure that's what his mother called him. She wouldn't have gone with that whole name. Uh, and so gave him to them. They hang. They do what you see Saul and Jonathan done, done to their bodies after the battle where they lose the Philistines. They hang them from the walls and they leave them exposed. In the first, in this 
time frame, that is a warning to others not to do what these guys did. And so you have this great story of Rizpah, who is the mother of two of these guys. They hang them from the wall. And so she camps out right there. And she keeps the vultures from eating them, and she keeps the wild animals from eating the bodies. And she stays until, uh, until the rain comes. Remember, there's a drought. There was no rain. All of a sudden, once this happened, the rain starts again. And so David hears about what she's done. And from what I've read from other people, he looks at and goes, wow, she is doing more. In his mind, he had gotten rid of this problem. And he realized now she's now in a way shaming me because she is protecting the love she's shown for her children who are dead but they're protecting the bodies so that they are not because to be eaten by wild animals in this culture is shame you want to be buried in your parents or your family tomb quickly too. quickly yes so they're hanging out for some amount of time and so uh, what he does is he as you remember the story, Jabesh Gilead, they had taken the bodies of Jonathan and Saul down and hidden them away from the Philistines. David remembers this, so he goes and gets those bones as well as the bodies of these seven guys, takes them back to the city of Zelah, where they're from, and buries them all in Kish's tomb, in the family tomb. So that's an honoring thing of, uh, I'm not... He, he changes his mind and says, you're not going to expose these guys and dishonor this family. I'm going to take them and honorably bury them with Saul, who was the king, and with Jonathan, his best friend. Can, can I say yes, something? go ahead. So, so that you, you continually in the Old Testament read that phrase, and he was buried with, uh, with his father's people. Because that's what they did, and that's what they do in Israel to this day. They bury some, the ritual is you bury someone and you wait a full year after that body is decomposed. You go and you get the bones and you put the bones in a box, a stone box called an ossuary. And you then put the ossuary in with the family tomb. So you can go to Israel today and we can find David's tomb. There are no ossuary in it, but that's where he was laid and all of his family would have been laid in that royal tomb in the ossuary box. Those graves that you see on the east side, full of ossuary. And so and that's family honor. And that's what David is doing. He is honoring Saul's family. The man who tried to kill him for the previous 10 years, 13 years, give or take a little bit, he is honoring him by taking all the bones back to the family grave. So, that's the first story of the famine. Uh, yes? Rain coming back and kind of lends credence to God approving what they did. My opinion, yeah. I don't think God approved I don't think God's approving of the sacrifice. Because 
throughout the Old Testament, you'll see instances of guys doing things that we would interpret as fulfilling an oath that are not necessarily God-honoring. Uh, in Judges, you have a story of one of the guys coming back from battle and he said, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes to meet me, thinking it's going to be a dog or an animal of some sort. And his daughter runs out. And he sacrifices his daughter. He keeps his word. Is that God-honoring? No. Uh, and I think this, I think you see David recognizing by the, his action of taking the bodies down that he, they should have let been stayed up there until they rotted away. Because that's culturally what you did as a payback. Uh, I think part of the rain coming is the fact that David has now recognized that Saul violated God's uh, treaty with these people. And that David is not pursuing that treaty. And the, the fact that they're recognized among all the people of Israel of don't kill the Gibeonites. We have a treaty with them. And so I think that's why the, the rains came, why the famine was over. Not that the fact that they killed seven of Saul's children by concubines. All right, next story. Uh, famine, heroes. Uh, again, this is early on. Uh, and we, we see the descendants of this Rapha is a tribe. Uh, they are there. We have history on them. We have the Egyptians write about these guys that they were all extremely tall, they were all extremely big, and they were fearsome warriors. They were a. Uh, the Egyptians like to hire these guys as mercenaries, because remember you fight one on one. So if you're seven foot tall and everyone else is five foot tall, you've got an advantage. There is a. So the Rapha. They come from an area, the Amorites. Uh, we have already met one of them, Goliath. All these guys are from the same town. And so this, so these are fearsome warriors. So this story is telling about the heroes that are killing the fearsome warriors of the Philistines. Uh, and so you have all these guys, uh, Ishbabah Benob, his bronze sport. Spearhead weighed 300 shekels. That's about seven pounds. That's a significant spear. Uh, and he was armed with a new sword, which means he had an iron sword, not a bronze sword. And then uh, they're fighting, and he comes after David. Remember, in these days, you fought one-on-one. -on -one. There was no, you know, it's like, you know, I see, I see Larry. Larry and I are going to fight. Once we're done, we're going to go to the next fight. And so... You go after the king, because what was the king's job? To lead the people of Israel in their fights. You go all the way back to when Saul was crowned. And so Abishai, who is David's nephew, comes and rescues him and kills the guy. And then they said, never again to go out with us to battle so that the life of Israel will not be extinguished. Uh, yeah, if David gets killed, they're in, they're in a world of hurt, because your king is dead. And so... Uh, just reminding him that David's more important than just fighting fights. He is the leader of Israel. And another time, so one of the descendants. Uh, and then uh, another one of David's warriors kills Sam, another descendant. Uh, and then uh, 
a third battle, uh, Elhanan, another one of David's, when you, you're going to see them all listed later on in the book, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. And so, I mean, it's, it's tough for Goliath's family. The, all, all the family's going down. Uh, and then another battle, which took place at Gath, again, down in Philistine territory. He had six fingers and six toes. Uh, he was also descended from Rapha. He taunted Israel. Go back to the story of Goliath. What does Goliath do before the battle? I'm the biggest guy around here. I taunt you. Come on and fight me. Uh, so they fought him. And Jonathan, also David's nephew, killed him. And so these four were descended from Rath, and they all fell in the hands of David and his men. So the story telling about how David and his men of valor kill all the fearsome warriors of the Philistines. So this is basically saying, you know, this is a story you would tell your children at night. Of This is the great, these are the great men of David. Here's what they did. And, you know, how they, these guys all were threatening us. David kept us safe. David's men kept us safe. That's this story. It's a story of the famine, story of his, his heroes. We're going to see this, like, at the, we talked about it at the rest of it, all the way back here. As we come out of this section, we're going to do this in reverse order, which is what Randall's doing next week. All right, now we get to the psalm, which is the important parts of this story, or the two psalms. Uh, the first psalm is Psalm 18. It, it's also in the Bible as Psalm 18. Uh, it's written very, it says it's written very early in David's life. It's just after Saul has died and David has become the undisputed king of Israel. Uh, the Lord, you, you have heard Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. That's how it starts. Uh, the interesting part, two words for rock here are different words. Uh, and part of this, remember when you, we should really do is read this out loud. This is read, Psalm 18 gets read in, in the temple before the nation of Israel routinely. And it's read out loud. And it's all 54 verse entirety. And so it is, it's also one that if you were a Jewish child, you'd memorize this. You would know this instantaneously. These two words for rock, one means high places. Like I'm standing on top of a wall. And so the Lord is my wall. You know, because in those days, walled cities were for, is where you wanted to be. And so he says, God is my wall. This rock in whom I take refuge is like a cave in a wall. So it goes back to David's, think about when he's running from Saul, where is he taking refuge all the time? Here, in these kind of rocks where you're protected, you're in a cave. And so what he's saying is God is the fortress, and the God is my protector. He's my house. I'm living. He's surrounding me. He's protecting me. He's my stronghold. 
He is my refuge, my savior. From violent people, you save me. David just spent seven years on the run with Saul trying to kill him. Uh, this is just a saw, a psalm of praise. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and has saved me from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. So David said, it's not me that survived this. God protected me through all this. The cords of the grave caught around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord and I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. So, culture. Who lives in the temple? God. So, he's basically saying, God is approachable. God heard my voice. I didn't have to go to him in his temple. He says, I cried out and God hears me. And he comes and he helps me. Uh, the earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of heaven shook. Uh, we have writings from this time and that's what kind of the thing you said when uh, your king won a battle. We have writings of the Egyptians, of the Babylonians, of the Assyrians. And when they, when they said when the, when the king comes out to battle, the foundations of the, of the heavens and the, and the ground shake. David is saying God is greater than that. Uh, they trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. The consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. Visualize this as they're reading this. I mean, this, he's painting a picture of God coming to save him. And this is not, you know, we all have, we all have all the pictures. And you know, when you had, grew up and had the Bible and you had a little pic, you know, put the paintings in it. Was God ever uh, angry? Flame coming out of his mouth. He's he's a kindly old man, right? He's got his white hair and he's sitting there. That's not the picture David's painting here. This is a vengeance, a God of vengeance, saying, "You're." Whoever's after David, you're after my man. I'm coming to take care of you. He parted the heavens and came down. So, from above, God coming down to earth. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared in the wings of the wind. He made the darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. So, he's coming as a storm. That's a storm. God is coming to rescue me. So he's trying to paint this picture. I mean, we've all been out where thunderstorms are coming. You realize how insignificant you are when the thunderstorms are rolling in. I grew up in Ohio and Indiana where it's really flat. You can see thunderstorms coming from a really long way away. And if you're out in the field doing something, you go out and you look and go, that storm's coming, I should leave. Because you realize that I'm nothing compared to that. That's the picture David's painting here. <clears throat> Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of his most high resounded. He's powerful. Lightning sh striking out. Coals, fire. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. So, I mean, you can see the picture lightning coming down think of 
you know, in, in this culture, you know, God control. They had multiple gods. The big gods controlled lightning. You know, think of uh, go back to your Disney World. Uh, Zeus. You know, what he does? He throws lightning bolts down. That's the picture you're seeing here of God destroying people with lightning bolts. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of God at the blast of breath from his nostrils. There are multiple gods in culture, in this culture. Uh, the deeper you get in the caves, that's where evil and the gods, the gods of the underworld live. Gods of the underworld live in the ocean. And so... Part of that is, is your God more powerful than these unknown gods? Because think about it, when they went sailing, half the times the ships didn't come back. You know, the God is a deep God that, boom, it's gone. That's the whole book of Jonah. And what David is saying is, God is so powerful, he exposes the deep. All the way to the, end of the bottom of the ocean, God opens it up. And he looks at the foundation of the earth. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, we talked about it last year, when Jesus goes to the cave and says, you know, you know, there's evil down here, and uh, you know, because everyone says, well, that's you know where the devil is, or Satan, or the underworld, and he says, no, the foundations of the earth are laid bare. God controls all that. He is more powerful than the gods of the underworld, than all the other second level gods of the people around them. The God comes down and lays all that open. And so for, you know, for people that, you know, don't boat and don't swim, you know, we're, we're so used to like life preservers, the fact our boats don't sink, that's a big deal to them. You know, we have submarines, you know, we, you know we've seen what's under the ocean. They did, you know, if, if you win the ocean, the odds were you're drowning. So this is a huge thing for David to say God is bigger than the monsters of the deep. And so you see him just this overwhelming power of God in the psalm. And he reached down from high and took hold of me and drew me out of deep waters. David was the picture of David's drowning in the sea. He's going down. He's dead. And God reaches from heaven, grabs him, and pulls him out. This, the local gods didn't do that. They were capricious at their best. The fact that God, he calls to God, God's is his temple, this power picture comes down, and he just reaches and grabs David and rescues him. He rescued me from my enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. David does nothing here. This is all God saving him. He brought me out to a spacious, spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I mean, it's hard to describe the importance of that. God delights in David. He recognized the fact that he is a son of God. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He has rewarded me. 
Think about all the stuff David has done. No, when did he write that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that book. Yeah, he, he wrote this. This is before Bathsheba. But this is still... This is early kingship. This is early kingship before Bathsheba. But he's still six wives into the, into the kingship here. He's still got six wives. He still has a problem with girls. Uh, his, uh, you know, you know, he still done nothing. If Esther, Joab, uh, when Joab killed Abner, this is before this. So you know, he, he's ignored a lot of stuff in his life, and he says, "God recognized me as righteousness, uh, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All His laws are before me. I have not turned away from His decrees." Written by man who has. Think of all the stuff he's done. But he, he's recognized. I was born. Oh, yeah. He just killed seven guys who were innocent, yes. Uh, this chapter. Yeah. So, this, I mean, this is, this is the part that makes David so interesting is that he does something like that, and then he writes this when he recognizes uh, I have been blameless before him, I've kept myself from sin. He has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Uh, Randall, you know the word. Siddiqah. Yes. Siddiq. Uh, so David is saying, I am Siddiq. In the New Testament, Joseph, the father, the father of Jesus, is Siddiq. Siddiq is a person who pursues God in everything. And he is blameless, not through his actions, but the fact that he is trusting in God. So that's what David is saying here. I'm Sadiq. It's not because no, I... David's saying he, that he's Sadiq because of his actions. According to my cleanliness in his sight. I got clean hands. Yeah, I, I think he's, he's trying to say that this, but I think uh, <laughs> David's recognizing the fact that God is doing stuff for him not because he's any great. Because over here he's basically saying, there's nothing I could do. That's right. <laughs> right. Because if, if David's right by his righteousness, the rest of us are in pretty good shape. <laughs> I mean, I have not killed very many people. I've only got one wife. I, you know, today. Today. Today, yes. <laughs> the day's still young. But, <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, so you're, you remember, remember who's writing this. And, you know, remember by the time you get to the end of his life where he's at. Uh, well, maybe David's looking forward to the second, the second Corinthians 5, God made him that had no sin to be sin yes. for us, so that in him we might become the right. Yes. Well, I, we're hoping, yeah. There, it all ties together. Right. David has great faith in God. If he wants to be Sadiq, he has issues. And as we said, this whole book of Second Samuel is David going, David does a great thing, and then he turns around and sins. David does a great thing. Then he turns around and says, the whole book is that. Uh, but he is a man after God's own heart that God sees as a son of his. A man that Jesus claims as an ancestor. That, you know, is the, is the king that all Jews want their kids to be like because he's a man of God. He's not perfect by any stretch. He always returned to God, though. Always. Yes. Unlike Solomon right. or anybody else, he always he, all, he would be great, 
he would see a pretty girl, be over here, and then, oh, I need to repent. And, you know, and just over in his life. He was contrived. Too. He was contrived. When he was pointed out, the good thing about David is he had Nathan in his life. And I think Nathan prayed more than one visit to the temple or to the uh, where David lived. More than we we have one recorded. But I think Nathan was probably there a lot going, hey, <laughs> we need to talk again. Because, you know, when Nathan shows up the one time we have recorded, David doesn't make him wait. I mean, Nathan goes straight in and says, hey, let me tell you a story. And I think you have to have that person in your life, you know. And, you know, when you're the king, uh, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we're going to see that next chapter, uh, or two chapters. But that's, David, you've got to have that person who whispers in your ear and go, well, you know, let's talk about this. Because otherwise you turn into Caligula, or you turn into Domitian. You turn into this emperor who has no restraint. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. Uh, To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you are pure. To the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble. Your eyes are on on the haughty to bring them low, the proud. You are the lamp. You turn my darkness into light. Uh, with your help I can advance against a troop, I can scale a wall. Remember, first century, they don't have electric lights. So when he's, the, de- the big deal of I can see at night, I can see what's around me, I can see the danger. Because you, Lord, you turn my darkness into light. We live in such a, a world we don't think about. When we go to Africa and the power goes out, and, go like, and you realize you can look around for miles and there's nothing. It's black. You go, hmm. And now I get more of a feeling for this. Because here there's so much light, we don't ever think about it. Even when our lights go out, people have got you know, batteries and generators. You know, when the, when the fire went out there, it's black. There is nothing. And remember, David, this is a psalm of thanksgiving from being saved from Saul. His way, as for God, his way is perfect, his Lord, his word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock, same word as the, first, the very beginning, except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He gives me feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. Because deer can run up. Like, so if you ever chased a deer through the woods or tried to, they go really fast over really uneven things. And that's what he's saying. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. So not just a wood bow, metal bow. Uh, I make your saving my help, my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. This is hilly in this area. So he's saying, you just make the road flat. Make it easy for me. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I crushed them completely. You armed me for the strength of battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their back and flight and destroy my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, he did not answer. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like the mud in the streets. You, you want, if you're getting a fight with someone, you can throw that one out. You're going to be the dust of the earth. Uh, you have delivered me 
from attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. So David recognizing God did all this for him. Uh, people I did not know now serve me. The foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They lose all heart and come trembling from their strongholds. Again, that's the same word of where's, what's God to David? Stronghold. So they're in their strongholds, but God is so powerful that people come out to David. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock. Same word again. Exiled be my God, my rock, my Savior. He is God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me. So who, where does all the power come from? God. Uh, we're going to find next chapter, David ignores this psalm and pays the punishment for it. Uh, he sets me free. You exalted me from a violent man. You rescued me. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises of your name. He gives the king his great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointing to David and his descendants forever. This is, when you look at it, Jesus comes from the house of David. So the end of this is recognizing that God has promised the Davidic covenant and that Jesus is going to come out of David's descendants. I think we're out of time. We are. All right. So there's the end of chapter 1, 22. Next week. Hey, can I, can I just... Yes, go ahead. Okay, so J.B. once again has thrown me a curve. And, uh, we, this class goes to the end of that. And we're through our material next week. <laughs> so Allie Kelly is going to give us a brief look at Samuel as opposed to Chronicles. Is that correct? And, and I think that'll be, he's prepared that before, and I think that'll be really good. The next thing I want to do, I still, I, talk, I actually accepted the challenge to Christ with the understanding that maybe if I study hard enough, at the end of it, I would understand what it means that David had a heart like God. I'm more confused today than I've ever been. Um, the Psalms, if you read in the Psalms, there's just incredible things that David was given. And I want to know, did that come from the Holy Spirit guiding David's hand as he wrote it? And or did it come from David's heart? I'm inclined to believe it came from David's heart. So your challenge is, <clears throat> if you don't want to hear, and I've already asked a couple of people to, to, to share their place in the Psalms. I would love it if we would take a class or two and everybody in here just get up and read your favorite psalm. If you've got something to say about it, fine. If you don't have something to say about it, there is a tremendous power in the collective reading of God's Word and the Spirit work it out. I think that's awesome. So everybody read the psalm. Let's, let's do it. All right. See you next week. <laughs>